Hello, everybody. This is Bear Bull Traders and our Talk with Traders podcast. Today, I have the opportunity to talk with Andrew McAvoy. Andrew's got a unique background. So Andrew was a trader and worked for uh, two major banks with JP Morgan and UBS in Hong Kong. He had an experience to work with those that manage the algorithms and sort of manage some of those algos himself, as well as the quants. Quants are the quantitative traders who actually design the algorithms. And through that experience, it gave him a great insight that when he left the bank, moved back to Dublin, Ireland, where he's from, to trade for himself. He's taking that information and using it to develop his own trading strategy. Andrew is a new retail trader, but a guy with three years of banking experience. And it's interesting to talk to his perspective, uh, you know, so hear his perspective and understand how he's applying that. So without further ado, let's get to the podcast. So Andrew, welcome Sounds to good. the Bearable Traders podcast. It's good having you. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Yeah. Well, look. Happy um, to be here. Why don't we start with uh, some background because you were referred to me by a number of our members who I guess you've been talking with right through the chat and elsewhere. And they said, you know what? There's a guy yep. you need to talk to. You need to reach out to Andrew McAvoy. So um, why don't we start there? <laughs> how did you get involved? Because we'll go into your, your, your deeper background later. But uh, tell me how you got involved with Bear uh -huh. Traders. So um, I was uh, I was I was a trader in in, in Hong Kong uh, as we'll chat about, but I actually I moved home and um, I've, uh, I actually kind of a kind of I basically I decided to quit my job in Hong Kong as a trader to come back because my dad has actually been struggling through a bit of a bit of cancer, but um, he's actually yeah. doing much better now. So this is actually I'm 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 saying this because it's kind of it kind of speaks to the power of. I'm going to touch on that point because it kind of speaks to the power of the of the community. And um, there's really there's not many many trading jobs in Dublin. It's not exactly a financial center. <laughs> right. So my little brother, who started trading uh, the meme stocks before Christmas, bought Andrew's book. Okay. And so after I quit my job in Hong Kong and I came home, I picked up that book, and I was like, oh wow, because I was I was initially planning on moving to London after quitting my job in Hong Kong, because I'm then traveling back and forth between Dublin and London, which is about an hour flight. Um, every weekend to see my dad while uh, kind of while he was going through his treatments and everything. But after reading the book and like kind of seeing that this was what I was doing in Hong Kong, except with clients' money. So now I was thinking, okay, this is actually has actually enabled me the chance to stay here and live in Dublin and trade trade myself. And um, yeah, so just picked up the book that my little brother bought to try and improve his GameStop trades, which I now, I'm now trying to apply to. Non-meme stocks, I guess. Ah, oh, look, the, the old meme stock trade. Well, I shouldn't say the old. It's brand new. Yeah, 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 yeah. So many people. Yeah, wow. yeah, I know, I know. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm only touching, not, not, not trying to bring across the sob story, more trying to get across the pair of like something like the community that is Bearable Traders and kind of the like just how great it's been being in here for the last four months and thinking, this is class, I love this. I wanna, I'll just be I'm able to stay in Dublin now and, 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 and trade. Well, that's fantastic. Well, look, you've alluded to a few things that are fascinating in your background. So let's start there. So you went to, so uh, you, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. you're sort of back in Dublin, but you went to university there in Dublin. Yep. And then it looks like you moved and went to yep. school in uh, in Beijing. Is that right? In Beijing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I did indeed. So I kind of, I've always, yeah, I've always, I've always followed markets and background, I guess, when I was like 15, 16, reading the Financial Times every single 
articles about the Chinese economy and how how that they were going to take over the world and et cetera, et cetera, which they're kind of doing, if we're all being honest. <laughs> um, so I, got, I, I picked my course in college here in Dublin as uh, international business with Mandarin as my Chinese, Chinese as my, as my uh, minor. Okay. So I did a year abroad, study, uh, study a year abroad, and then I went back after I finished my undergrad to study my finance master's in Beijing, in Renmin University there. So, and to kind of continue my, my trying, to, trying to improve my Mandarin skills, I guess. Right. Well, that seemed to have then parlayed it once you finished your master's. You ended up at JP Morgan for a while, uh, I, I presume in Hong Kong. Yep. And then moved yep, from, yep, yep, was indeed. Right, and then moved from there to USB. So you've got experience not only as now, right, as a trader on your own, but sort of within an institution. So what, yep. why don't we start there with the institutional trading? Because we, we talk about it a lot, but most yep. of us, most traders, have never actually traded from inside a bank, right, where the big money sits. So why don't you yep. give us a feel, because uh, mm -hmm. you actually were focused on, I would say, some of the leading edge stuff, right, with the algorithmic trading and the quant mm -hmm. stuff. So why don't you give us a yep. feel for what you did with the banks? Yeah, 100%. So I guess starting off with JP, I've got kind of a good, uh, the two roles I had were kind of, they're, they're quite different, uh, the one in JP versus what I was doing in, in UBS, but they give, they do give quite a good overview, I guess, of how the equities business works within banks. So I'll try my best to, to, to explain that as thoroughly as possible. So the job I was doing in JP Morgan was called prime brokerage sales. So I guess how you can think of that is like the banks work like, like interactive brokers do to hedge funds. Right. So I guess like it, like where the client interactive broker is our broker, JP Morgan would be the broker of X hedge fund. Right. So the job of the prime, and that's the, what like the, the brokerage, I guess they call them prime brokerage because they see the hedge funds that they get on as their clients as the prime kind of, of the, of the finance world. So um, what my job there as a sales person was to try and, I know. I I remember when I I think I was I think it was plus five hundred that I made my first account in like years ago, and someone called me like the next day and was like, "Oh, great to see your client now." Blah blah blah. So that was that's kind of what my first job was. Um, I was I was responsible for finding what new hedge funds were opening in Asia, or if there was say a U.S. fund fund that was opening an office in Asia, I was responsible for getting in touch with them and trying to get them to use J.P. Morgan as their broker. Okay. Um, so that was quite, that was quite an interesting role because I got to see it was, it's, it's not the markets trading side of things, but there's a huge amount of work apart from that and a huge amount of money that's made by the bank aside from just the trading part of having the clients kind of trading through JP Morgan as their broker. Well, that's, that's um, something because, that made me think of that I was going to say, like, there's a lot of money that we don't always appreciate as a retail trader. Um, yeah. uh, that is made yeah. just from, you know, acquiring that business. So they trade through them because that, that volume throughput yeah. is extremely valuable to banks. Huge. Yeah. Huge. And, uh, like one massive thing is that, so there's, I guess to break down the prime brokerage, um, side of the business. So basically within banks, the equities businesses are usually broken into markets, which is the trading side and prime brokerage. So within the prime brokerage side, you've got the sales job, which was what I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've got the margin team, which are responsible for giving the margin rates. So basically if the sales team contact hedge fund X and say, hey, look, we've heard you've opened an office in Asia. 
we'd love you to become a client of ours. Um, so th- and then they, they would say yes, no, or they'd say, yeah, okay, let's see what your margin rates are like. So what they would do is they would send us in a sample portfolio. Okay. Um, and then what happens is we pass the sample portfolio. That's kind of our job done then in a way. Right. And we pass that sample portfolio onto the, the risk and margin team. And they go, okay, so this is this, this client, uh, hedge fund X is, you know, quite is kind of active in X industry or X sector. Um, that looks like a good client. We'll give them a margin rate of let's say five to 10%. And also this is kind of at the stage where, you decide how much leverage there this client is allowed. Right. Um, so and it, it kind of it varies quite significantly depending on the client type as well, um, because the quant guys like the Citadels who who have a hedge fund side as well as their market making side, which kind of again how suspicious is that? But anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> I've I've always hypothesised that there's no way the uh, the guys in in uh, if, if, if the if the head if the market maker guys are having a beer after work with the hedge fund guys at Citadel, they're kind of I I, I struggle to see how those Chinese walls don't come down for a second and the um <laughs> the, the secrets get passed over. <laughs> but anyway, again, that's more the the, the, the tinfoil hat stuff as as Thor yeah, likes to call well, it. And um, it, it, it's hard not to say, right? Because I mean, it's funny from from the outside. Yeah, we just sit and shake our head. But I mean, the reality is. Like the banks, and you, you know, correct me in anything I'll say now that's that's wrong. But I mean, as a bank, major sources of income. Well, they they make money on order flow, sort of charging uh, transaction based yeah. fees for that activity. They they they, huh. they make money on, like you said, on margin because in providing margin, they sort of get yeah. they get a collection rate based on providing credit through to their clients based on the margin. Yeah. But then they also make money on yeah. the the arbitrage between um, on on sort of the the equity issuances, right? So where they can take fractions yeah. of pennies off the price on in, in advantage when when the buy and sell transactions happen, you know that's another side. Mm-hmm. So they sort of they, they get to make it on Huge. all fronts. Yeah, 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 and also another huge thing that they that, that it the, the margin and risk team are, are responsible for is if they look at if they find client X is very similar and takes the opposite side usually to client Y, they'll go, oh god, these two books are perfectly match off because so one thing that people kind of get a bit confused with is banks since the introduction of what was called the Volcker rule after the 08 recession is banks, especially within the equities department, can't really take much risk anymore. Okay. Um, a, a lot of the guys who would have been the big risk takers in banks left. I know, I know, I know this from talking to the, some of the guys who left post the 08 recession, recession is because of the Volcker rule, like, they can't take much risk sitting within a bank anymore because the, Sorry, the guys Andrew, sitting in. Andrew, when you say they can't Sorry, take ahead. much risk, meaning they can't do like they used to and trade big money on their own account. Yeah. Meaning buy, you know, volume. Of stock. Yeah. They can't, they can't use the, yeah, they can't use the bank's capital anymore to, right. to basically, they can't use the bank's money to make profit for the bank. Yeah, because right. they were seen as too systemically important to be taking as much risk as they were pre uh, pre the recession. So uh, a lot of the guys who were the big risk takers within these banks pre the rece- uh, kind of post the introduction of the Volcker rule all left and went to hedge funds because right. um, they were then able to keep going within that kind of, risk-taking role so one of the most important things now is and really what a lot of what 
kind of hedge funds and mutual funds or long only funds as they're called, um, they use banks for basically to get the price that they want that uh, like for, for whatever trade they're in. Right. So they now carry um, the, like banks are there now more more so for getting reaching that price benchmark that the client wants so if you see if the if the risk and margin team going back to that point if they see client two clients that kind of offset each other quite well and they trade quite a bit uh, against each other and they're able to match vwap over the day for these clients um that, and get them a better price performance and hit that benchmark perfectly they'll they'll be quite keen to get these clients onto their onto their books and um yeah because i mean at the end of the day all these clients care about is is kind of whether you're matching their price benchmark or not, mm-hmm. and um, that kind of then that kind of then filters through to the performance of, I guess, um, the, the the equity side. Then apart from the the, the prime brokerage side, um, in that the algos in the equities department is responsible for basically trying to achieve the price benchmark that the client wants. Okay, so let's dig into that. So how do these algos go and try and achieve that price benchmark? So I guess talking about the offsetting, I know within some banks now there's basically uh, an auto-complete option. So if client X sends in an order to buy um, 100 shares of Apple at VWAP over the day. So algos generally when they're trading VWAP, they will, they want, the client wants VWAP for the full day. If you're, if you're, unless they set like an end time for the order at 12 p.m. But generally clients want VWAP over the day because that, that's their price benchmark. So if a client comes in, if client X comes in and wants to short sell uh, 100 shares of Apple at VWAP over the day and client Y wants to long uh, 100 shares of Apple uh, like a VWAP over the day, they'll just straight away auto-complete that and then they'll match the two prices against each other at the end of the day, post-market. Um, so that's one way that they've really started to kind of ensure that the price performance um, and it, or the performance in achieving the client's benchmark has improved a lot recently. Um, and that's something that some of the banks are, are bringing in and kind of trying to uh, kind of improve the, yeah, the kind of the, their performance in achieving th- that benchmark. And also um, they'll, they'll see, we'll get notifications um, if one client is trading the same stock except on the opposite side. So again, using that example of if client X is long um, 100 shares of Apple and client Y is, is short selling 100 shares of Apple, we'll, I will, we'll get a notification. And if I know if it's kind of a sensitive client, um, I'll, re- I'll call them up uh, and I'll be like, hey, listen, I can see we have an opposite side order. We'll, we would never exchange any information about kind of, we, we, the client would always stay anonymous to, end, to, to any other to any other client and they'd never, they'd never ever know, but you're, it's a value added service to that client to, to call them up and say, Hey, listen, I can see you're trading this stock and you want view up over the day. I have, like, I have an opposite side order on my, like on my trading pad now from, um, from whatever, well, you would never say the client name, but, um, are you interested in, in crossing, uh, at, at such a price over the day? They'll say yes or this, I'll know. Cause they may have a view at the, the traders at the hedge, at the hedge funds may have a view that this actually, it, this, it, this could get better. The price could get better for them over the day. And they say, no, it's grand. I'll, 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 I'll leave it. Right. Right. Now, um, you, and then, you, so that's kind of, you're using uh, numbers that our retail traders are, are familiar with, but we're not talking a hundred shares. Normally that's a hundred thousand shares or no, a million no, shares, no, no, no. Right, yeah, no, I mean, I've, 
I've I've person yeah I mean through my during my time as a trader I personally had you know orders that were over a hundred million dollars sure. um I like uh, that I was watching trade yeah. over the day um so I mean I mean it's it's important to know kind of know that I guess uh, I'd say sixty probably upwards of sixty five percent now of of flow goes through algos and banks it's not through it's not through the Wolf of Wall Street kind of method anymore where everyone's hollering at each other on fo- on phones. Yeah. It's uh, like, I mean, I, I could have, I could easily have four or 500 trades for my clients on my, on my pad at one day. And I would probably, I'd touch or intervene in probably oh, like 1% of those. Cause I mean, just to make sure that the algo is doing what it's doing, that it's hitting its benchmark, those price benchmark, and then if it, if there was something, because I mean algos aren't perfect, right? So they can't predict everything that's going to happen in the market, obviously. So if I can see that a you know if 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 an algo is performing quite badly and it's really not hitting its price benchmark, I can then intervene and trade that manually because uh, just to see if the if I can improve the, the price performance or not. Right. Um, yeah. So there's there's kind of to expand on the. The kind of the price benchmark side of things. There's kind of there's a few main price benchmarks that clients care about, um, which is VWAP over the day. Yeah. Um, it's they want to achieve the open price, which the order would. This is so this this is one of the reasons why the open is so volatile because you've got these huge orders coming in and like so if if hedge funds could have a strategy which specifically targets the opening price. And so they could have these huge orders sent in and you've got all these, as Toro likes to say, buy them, sell them, buy them, sell them. They have all these huge orders coming in at the open that are all trying to achieve the open price, which creates this huge volatility. So that's, that's one. Um, there's clients who want to achieve purely the closing benchmark. So they would trade only in the closing auction. Um, so you've got VWAP, open, close. Uh, you've got arrival, which is basically the, the, the last printed price when the, order is sent in. So let's say if you send a trade in at 10, 10 a.m. and Apple and it's for Apple and the last, if it comes in at 10 a.m., the last printed price in the market is $105. That's a rival. So you need to try, if you're buying, you want to try and buy at a lower price than, than, than $105. Okay. Or if you're selling, you want to try and beat that arrival price by selling above $105. Right. And they have, all banks have various different algos which try and beat this um this pro- whatever price benchmark um that the clients has kind of set for the trade right um so they're they're pretty much the main ones and there's now there's now been more of an introduction of what are called opportunistic algos by banks which um i was ca- i was pretty surprised when i i was going through all the market auction theory stuff of how similar they are the, the, the so-called opportunistic algos the banks are using, how much the logic and theory behind those algos ties into market auction theory. Because there's things like if if the algo sees that, you know, if, if, there's, if, if the price seems to be coming our way, if the price is basically, if you're buying and the price seems to be dropping, the algo will basically pull its order and post deeper in the book because it thinks it'll be able to buy cheaper. Right. Um, at like pr- pretty soon. Um, they, there'll be things like, um, book imbalance. So the book will look through the book, sorry, the order, the algo will look through the, the order book 
and see where the big deep pockets of liquidity are. Mm-hmm. And it will see if the, how imbalanced the book is or not. So if the, if the, um, so if, like as the more, as market auction theory sees, if, if, if they see that there is a huge like order up above, it'll kind of, and it's, and it's selling, it'll kind of wait and it'll see, okay, wait, there's a big order back up here. This with the price could come this direction. Let's, let's pull back and sit back and hopefully get a better fill up top. Right. Um, and then it also looks at things. Um, it has a bit, a lot of it, a lot of algos now send out, um, what like kind of, I'd say inner or like, like I'd say I wouldn't say multiple orders, but they they have they now have what are called like aggressive and passive slices. So say if you're buying, they will sit and uh, they'll sit an order on the bid side, but now they also have the ability to send orders and cross the thread and start hitting orders on the ask, so that they can make sure that they're still being involved in the in the volume, and that they're not missing. Because like the last thing you want is for the algo to get too smart and basically think, oh no, the price will come back down, but it keeps going and you end up buying later on in the day. So it always has to be chipping away throughout the day, just kind of buying little bits, little bits. Because also the last thing you don't, the last thing you want is for, and it's happened where something's gone wrong and the client's rang me and it's like, well, I haven't been filled in 10 minutes. What's going on here? Because the client expects, you know, fills pretty, pretty frequently. Right. yeah, so it's yeah that you you sometimes get those pretty pretty angry calls from from clients, which is uh, not 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 too much fun. I imagine not. But this is fascinating from a retail trader point of view because this, as you say, ties into a lot of the stuff that we talk about. We do it from a a lot where yeah. we we only see the result of it. We don't understand the motivation. And Andrew, I really appreciate because this helps maybe explain some of the motivation. For example, we talk about when you look at the mm. level two, whatever tool you're using, we tend to use DAS yeah. Pro, but it doesn't really matter as long as you've got uh, access to the level two information. You know, we see these big orders that may sit down on the bid or up on the ask and say, well, they sort of act like magnets, mm-hmm. right? Because we, we find that the price tends to get drawn towards those big orders, whether it's up or down, depending on the direction of the price mm-hmm. movement. But what you just said, Andrew, helps explain why, right? Because if you have other orders and algos that are saying, well, we're going to we're going to drip feed so we keep the momentum going because they also want to make sure they're part of the game. But they're going to be holding back a lot mm-hmm. of volume, waiting for that big order, which frankly just makes that price point even more attractive. Um, you know, that, that yeah. sort of just yeah. reinforces the theory and why it works that way. So and 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 for example, Andrew, what, what you said makes a lot of sense to me because it helps explain, you know, Use an example. You're, you've been talking Apple, so let's use Apple for example. Sometimes you'll see a big order, let's mm-hmm. say at $149. And when it hits that, you notice, I always notice it consumes that volume, but then it continues to pop because essentially it exhausts yeah. all the immediately available inventory that's on the bid. But if you've got other orders that are backed yeah. up and algos that are waiting for it, well, then they're likely to get filled at, you know, 149, yeah. 5, 10, 15 until those get exhausted. And that just further pr- pushes the price. Yeah. Yeah, and and then as usually as you see as the price runs once it gets through those big pockets of liquidity, the algos a lot of the algos logic works off of if there is a lot of prints going through on the far side of the spread, I need to get involved in that liquidity because especially so so one big thing um, which is a pretty it was a pretty uh, I think I wouldn't say it's a pretty new concept but it's a pretty big algo that clients are getting more and more. uh, more kind of interested in was when they see these big pockets of liquidity, um, 
sitting at a certain price that is cheaper than historical averages. So let's say if, so I'm, I'm sure people have seen a, a big order sitting up at a certain price on the ask and it suddenly just runs for that. Right. There's an, there's, there are algos which look at that pocket, of, look through the book and look at that pocket of liquidity and go, okay, we've got, got 200,000 shares of Apple on the ask for a price that is quite cheap versus historical averages. Like, so I need to go and consume this liquidity straight away before someone else does. Right. So it will literally cross the spread, go through four or five levels and just eat up that liquidity. Yeah. And then, all, and then as the, as yeah, like, I'm sure as we all know, when it gets through these pockets of liquidity and it keeps, it keeps the kind of, it keeps, the price keeps running. It's that's adding fuel to the fire because the other algos which are in the market are seeing the prints go through on the far side of the spread. And they're like, okay, this is a lot of prints versus historical averages going through on the far side. I need to go and contribute to this or I need to get involved in this before the price gets worse. Um, and they'll, which will just, yeah, as I was saying, add fuel to the fire. Yeah. So I'm curious. So then as a, as you know, someone who's come from that environment with that experience and moved to a, a retail background, how do you find you can best leverage that experience to, to profitably trade for yourself? Um, I, I, I kind of through knowing 100% that you need to trade with the institutions. There's no way that you're going to be able to outsmart them. Like, <laughs> and I know I like, I, so with, with, within, within UBS, um, we all used to sit in like UBS is a f phenomenal place to work. It was incredible. I absolutely loved it. And they were so big, uh, over in the kind of, especially in the electronic, it's called electronic trading, uh, kind of the algo space. Um, and they were huge, they'd be huge uh, over in Asia for, for a long time. Um, and they had a really good, really great kind of team atmosphere. And one of the big things was we were, so, I mean, I, I, I before people think that you need to be some sort of genius to trade algos in a bank, you don't, uh, I don't, I can't code. I can't do anything like that. You just need to like, it's, cause it's, it's, I, I, the way I kind of like to, because people, when you say to people, they're kind of like, "Oh my god, you must be some sort of computer genius." And like, no, definitely not, definitely not. Um, but the way I like to describe it is, the algos are a car. So like, you, you, you like, they're, they're like, basically, I know how to drive the car. I don't know how it's made, or I don't know how to make a car. Right. But that's how you kind of, that's how it works. Is the quants are the guys who are the complete wizards and geniuses, and like, so, and we used to sit very close to them. Um, and they were some of the, they were just some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. Um, they're like, yeah. So, I mean, having sat beside them and knowing that they're behind the logic that the algos work off of, there's no way I'm trading against those guys. <laughs> sure. sure. And is it like a, you, you make me think of oh, a yeah. typical like engineering loop where, you know, so using your car analogy. So while, the, while the quants are the guys, like they're the engineers who really built it and, and, and built the yeah. car, so to speak in, in this analogy. Mm -hmm. And d d they must look over and see, well, if this is how you're driving it, I might change my engineering on the car. I'll change how it functions or change the algo because yeah, yeah, yeah. you're not driving it the way I necessarily expected you to. Yeah. And also, um, they, they, they or we may be not driving it the way they expected us to, is, but that's maybe because there are some market nuances which you just simply can't account for through coding and math and everything. So we'll... Well, well, like there's there's heaps of dry runs that you'll do with algos that get released and new kind of whatever whenever a new algo is released, you'll you'll do test runs with kind of test orders and see how it's see how it's interacting with the market and 
again, you, you, you can't predict everything that's going to happen. And also a lot of the time they may, they may be, the algo can potentially try to, it'll be, or trying to act too cutely and trying to get too good of a fill. And you'll, again, clients sometimes don't really care. They just want to get filled. Because yeah. a lot of the time, like how it works on the, on the client side is within these hedge funders, they've got a portfolio manager who said, who's passed through the stocks that he wants to buy that day onto the traders with who work in the hedge fund. And the trader just cares about getting their PMs, their portfolio managers or their PM as they're called, shorthand they just care get getting getting their pm put their pm's order filled because the last thing they want is to be getting shouted at yeah i'm saying why why have i still i had an order for a thousand shares of apple or in their case i don't know, a million shares of apple shares of why apple. have i only got nine hundred ninety thousand shares shares filled and i guess i talking about big orders i'd like i'll touch on so this kind of there's a few different teams that work just kind of for the for the, for the listeners to kind of get a sense of how the broader equities kind of team works as well is um this so i guess there's there's a team called the blocks the blocks team uh, within these equities uh the equity side of the, fr- the franchise where they'll deal in purely big ass orders like percentages of companies right. like nothing under 10 million dollars anyway that's for sure and um they'll deal with a lot of the new issues of of any kind of any secondary listings or any they'll be involved in in, in some ipo stuff as well and but that's a pretty cool side of the equities business where these guys deal in like proper huge volume. And um, these are the huge block trades that you see printed off market. And they, the reason people kind of, people kind of see that as a weird kind of a, like a why, like why are they being printed off market? Why aren't they, you know, why aren't they involved in the normal daily volume? And if the, like, if these big block trades are printed during the normal trading hours, it would, it would potentially, you know, first of all, they're, they're, they're I mean, it would, it would, tank the market potentially during the day or uh, but like so they just have to be printed off off market because they're such big transactions and they're usually agreed at a discount or a premium to what the current market price is right so if if someone's buying you know let's say one percent of a certain company but at five percent discount from the current price you can't print that during the normal day you got to print it off market at, 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 at like between the two clients um I think it's used. I know in Asia it's postmarket. I think it's postmarket in the in the US as well. Right. Um, and then there's also the uh, another another part of the the equities business side, the the cash sales guys. So these would have been, these are like the, the, the because banks are becoming more and more kind of electronified. I guess um, the 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 jobs of people kind of bringing up a client and giving them an, an, a, like a, a pitch of a stock over the phone is kind of dying out. And this is what the, the, the equity sales guys do. Um, so they kind of, the equity sales guys, they will get, they'll have their own, I mean, they're, they're, they're smart guys. So they'll have their own ideas of what's going to move, of what, what's a good stock to get in or out of. But their main idea, I get their main, one of their main roles is to pitch the stocks that the research teams have kind of done their analysis on and say, this is a short, this is a long, right. and they'll know which clients to, to call up and say, Hey, listen, I know you're heavy in the tech sector. Um, you know, Amazon are going to do potentially going to go to this price or down to this price. And based off of our research analysts, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, and another big thing, another big role of the cash sales guys is kind of what's called the corporate action side of stuff. So they will, and this is, this is kind of, 
it's an interesting part of hearing about those long-term kind of value levels, which are set and get defended like to the, till the cows come home. Um, and they 100% do because one of the jobs of these cash sales guys is to put these, like they'll put some of the big, like, let's say it's a huge, the bit, one of the biggest hedge funds in the world is a fund called millennium capital management. And mm-hmm. um, let's say their, their CIO is, wants to get long a certain percentage of a company. One of the, the jobs of the cash sales desk is to put the CEO of X company in touch with the head of this hedge fund because this hedge fund guy before he wants, before he goes long, such a large proportion of the company, he wants to get a pretty damn good insight into how this company's run, who's running it, what their forecast for revenue is, et cetera. So once they, and like, this is, I'm talking like they'll, they'll come, they'll, They'll hop on their private jet as they do. They'll fly over and they'll meet these guys at these. At, there's usually big, big events where these CEOs can meet these heads of funds and everything to discuss kind of their their game plan going forward as a company. But once those, if 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 these hedge fund guys decide that okay, we're in at this price. If the price comes near that price, you can be damn sure after taking the trip over to Asia to meet these CEOs, they're going to defend that price once it comes back down to it, 100. Right. Um. So yeah, it's, it's quite, it's, it's quite, an, it's quite, an, it's quite, a, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, it, it's amazing to me how, um, you know, what you described resonates with me perfectly, both for my corporate life and, and just as an investor, right? Mm-hmm. Like I know that, you know, even just as a, as a, as a small fry out here, retail investor, you know, when, when I get my fund manager who manages my retirement portfolio, it says, Hey, we were doing this. And I was talking mm-hmm. with the prime, the principal who talked with the CEO, like that has an influence, yeah. right? So as much as, yeah. as yeah. much as you're saying, there's uh you know, there's so much algorithm driven traffic and activity there's still a huge relationship mm-hmm. component behind these stocks that drives market for behavior. sure 100 percent, 100 percent without a doubt and there's that's the one thing that i guess will i i think will never become electronified are these big orders you can't right. you can't do it really um well first i mean they're just too sensitive i guess yeah. um that like you want that personal touch and you kind of you want to be able to it's i guess the bigger the order potentially the the more edgy you would get about letting it up to kind of a, a machine i guess you want that <laughs> you you want or at least you'd, you'd want so you'd want a pretty damn good trader sitting behind that algo watching it trade all day yeah, well, I mean, if nothing else, you you actually rewrite the algo in some cases to defend that price, right? So it becomes it becomes true in of itself yeah. because not only have you got your trader watching it, but you may yeah. purposely re- redesign the way the computers are trading against it to make sure you maintain that level that you've now feel you've yeah. you know that that fund manager with a you know half a billion of of uh, money behind them is you know as you said they've made commitments now to their clients in turn after that conversation yeah as you said damn sure they're yeah. going to want to make sure that it it plays true yeah. yeah yeah for sure and I guess actually to touch on that kind of where the half a billion behind this full manager kind of where they get that cat that money is something that might be interesting to to the listeners as well is there's a on the prime brokerage side which I kind of spoke about earlier there's a specific team called the um the cap the capital introduction team okay. and their job uh, on behalf of the hedge funds as their as their client is to introduce them to these huge pension funds and these huge kind of used university endowment funds and to give them 
because I, I I think I could be wrong, but I think these these kind of big pension funds and university endowment funds, I think they allocate around five ten percent to hedge funds usually of their you know whatever twenty billion they have behind them, yeah. um, and they'll so one of the the job of the of the cap the cap intro team is to you know if there's a hedge fund in Asia who wants to go over and meet the university endowment teams in Harvard, Yale, and then the state pension fund and, you know, California, et cetera, they'll, they'll, their job is to kind of be the relationship manager between those, those two kind of the, 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 fund, the, the, the state pension funds and the hedge fund to meet, to, to get them an introductory meeting and sit the hedge fund will then be like, Hey, this is us. This is what we do. This is our return over the last kind of five, 10 years. We think we'd be a good client. Or we think we'd be a good option for you to kind of park your money with us. Right. And, well, you know, not to get too deep into that, but you're right. There's there's huge pools of money out there because while fewer companies are offering pensions, huge. those that have pensions, you know, they have they have multiple requirements. They obviously have to provide for the, the you know, the, their pensioners, which is their employees that have retired. But they mm-hmm. also have to make sure there's enough growth in it to, to survive the terms and conditions of their yeah. pension and be able to service those pensions for the years to come. So you're right. They can't take risk on all of it, yeah. but they have to take risk on some of it or they won't be able to achieve, yeah. achieve the growth requirements required to maintain the pension pool yeah so i know that like i'm canadian and some of the big sure. pension funds in canada are like the teachers unions and uh, bell canada and some of mm-hmm. our big you know organizations that have big deep pension funds and you're right they get you know they get wined and dined all the time because hedge funds desperately want to be able yeah. to service part of that it's... pension fund and, and drive that help drive that growth mandate for the percentage that they're willing to for invest sure. in higher risk it's it'd be it'd be one of the dream jobs in the world that's for sure just getting wine <laughs> and dined but I mean to be the person that to be the person that the hedge fund guys suck up to you got to be pretty important <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly I always say no matter how big you are there's always a bigger boss right there's always someone to whom you need to suck up one hundred percent one hundred percent to make the world go around without a doubt so. without a doubt so look there's so you no, started it's, talking it's, about it's kind of, oh go ahead. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, you started talking about the things that, you know, you've learned that you apply to trading as a retail trader. So number one, follow the big money. So I think we firmly established that. Never trade yeah. against the big boys. Are there any other key tenants I would say yeah. you carry forward? Um, understanding how the algos work and having studied, looked at VPA and, because I guess that's kind of, look at how the algos work in terms of like seeing if there's kind of, if, if, the, if the prints are coming through on the bid side of the book and there's the kind of like basically if there's more prints coming through on the bid side of the book versus historical averages, the algos will say, okay, there's this, the price is coming our way. If we're buying, we can sit there and wait. That kind of ties into VPA a little bit and watching how the price is trading for sure. Um, and also market auction theory is something that ties in quite, quite, quite tidily into how the algos operate as well in terms of the logic behind them. So I think follow the big money, but also kind of follow how the big money operates, which I think VPA and market auction theory uh, really, really work quite well in doing that. Right. Right. Well, that, that all makes sense to me. So um, as a tool, I'm curious, one of the things that a number of our members have started to use is a tool called Bookmap that helps them understand where some of those orders sit. Mm-hmm. Is that something you use? Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, it's it's not, but I, I think it's Mark from Seattle is always posting those in yeah. the chat. So I, I whenever he posts one in, I'll I'll hundred percent look at it and and take a look because I mean it's something that I guess I'll I'll definitely be getting a subscription to that at some point. But kind of trying to spread. I've I've paid about five six grand in subscriptions, all sorts of things so far. So that's something I'll treat myself to once my performance gets better. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. It's a, there are a lot of tools out there, but that's one that seems to uh, have some value. So but look, it's 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 if it makes any if it makes any retail trader sound better, the setup costs for for becoming a retail trader are a hell of a lot less than the setup costs for trying to become a big proper fund i know like when i was at jp um i think the onboarding costs for a client to once we accepted a client and they were coming on board i think the onboarding costs were four hundred thousand us per client wow through all the legal fees and everything it's crazy wow crazy so yeah it's uh it's a hell of a lot cheaper to be a retail trader you can you can i can guarantee you that (laughs) well well, that's true. Absolutely. Now, before we, we, we came onto the podcast on air, we, we sort of briefly touched on some of the downsides. And, and you've mentioned one of the things that you know, is near and dear to my heart. Uh, you sort of said one of the downsides, and hopefully I'm, I'm re-saying this properly, but is the fact that you, you, almost, you have no backstop. You're sort of saying you're on your own here and where you had rules and regulations in the bank. Here, you've got like risk mm-hmm. management's all yours, right? Like, so you've got to figure yeah, out yeah. what it is. You've got to implement it. And you've got to hold yourself to it. How have you found that transition yeah. for you personally? So I, I guess, I, 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 I didn't find it too bad because I came coming from a role where I was dealing with orders in the in the tens of millions and in the hundred, like you know, most of the time in in the millions. Right. You had to be so so strict in how you were watching the algos trade you know how the algos performing and i basically just tried to to have no lapse in that kind of continuation of discipline and just bring it over and like start trading with that discipline in risk management straight away and so like i mean i've had i've had hard stops in my like on my on my das platform from, from day one and um, you know, I've got a max loss that I'm never going to blow through. That's for sure. Cause, um, I knew, I guess coming from the background of trading in a bank, I knew how serious of a game trading was right. and how quickly it can go wrong. <laughs> so yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm not kind of, I guess if not, I guess I'm not trying to say I'm like, I kind of have a better background ever, but I mean, if I, if I, if I know, if I like, if, if I know how quickly things can go wrong and how serious trading actually is and how seriously you need to treat trading and not be an idiot. Um, yeah, you need to treat it pretty damn seriously for sure. Well, uh, cause it can, it can, it can, it can wipe you out. Yeah. Well, no, look, that, that's a great lesson. And I hope everybody listening takes that to heart that you absolutely need to take it damn seriously. Cause yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it, can, go sideways, it can go sideways quickly. Right. And, and you may have a, a wonder, like a great mm-hmm. trade idea. It doesn't mean they're all going to work. And the worst thing you can do as a trader is get fixed in a perspective that says, I know this is going to work. I'm just going to give it a little more time. Right, because that that's usually the road yeah. to to despair. The problem is, every once in a while, we get rewarded for that. But to your point, Andrew, you know, something breaks. Mm-hmm. Whatever you said, your stop is 
get out. Commissions are cheap. Even for a retail trader yeah. nowadays, commissions are cheap. Yeah. You're better off, get out, reassess. Yeah. If it may, and that reassessment could be five seconds or it could be five hours. Mm -hmm. But you know, if, if you're yeah. trying to, to day trade, reassess, then, then make a, a real conscious decision about getting back in rather than hoping and praying it'll just eventually work. 100%. Yeah, the, the best thing you can possibly do, and I found that is step away, go for a walk, take it easy. Don't rush back in. Because, I mean, like, and I was doing it with, it wasn't even my, I guess, I don't know, I guess it's kind of weird because I'm not sure if it's worse that I'm doing it with my own money now or if when I was kind of, when we were trading and it was all our own clients' money that we were using in the bank, I guess, whether, I'm not sure if I'd be, like, what's worse, if you lose your own money or your client's money? Because <laughs> either way, you're, I guess either way, you're kind of out of a job. Right. <laughs> well, that's true. Um, yeah, so, I mean, uh, it's kind of, I, I guess I was able to know that, I mean, I, I, mean I, I, had, I messed up a couple of times, as everyone does, and you just got to, there's kind of a usual rule of just don't get, don't get the, um, don't get the same thing wrong twice basically yeah um once you once you mess up and you get corrected and you understand then why you messed up just don't do it again basically right. so um if, especially if share, anyway I'm, I'm, let me ask you on that front yeah go ahead share then so when when you were within the bank what was the what was the biggest mm -hmm. loss that you suffered the biggest loss i had was 50 grand 50 grand. 50 grand which is yeah which was i mean not too bad i mean it was i was pretty happy with with having that as, as as my worst i know i know i know there was other traders who had losses which were significantly more yeah yeah actually that that's, that's that's pretty good <laughs> it sounds pretty modest so now now that yeah yeah are, no i am um, now that you're an independent retail trader, sorry go ahead, go ahead what's what's the biggest loss that you've had with your own money uh so to put it this way and to understand how seriously you need to take it i've been i'm still trading in sim and i have been for the last two months because i understand how much i need to get things nailed and how seriously you need to trade it so i haven't even i haven't taken a live trade yet in the last four months uh, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna leave i'm not gonna leave sim for another at least two months because i like you just you've got you, yeah you've got to have it nailed you've got to have it nailed if you if there's it's it is all about the system and if 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 one thing goes wrong it, it, it does all go wrong. It's a domino effect. So yeah, you got to have it nailed in. So I'm not coming out of SIM for another two months. You know what? But I love hearing that. So, so you, Andrew, is a guy with three years of hardcore experience working for the banks. You know, you, you didn't come out of this say, I got this nailed and you went live right away. Even you said, I'm going into SIM. I got to no. figure it out because the yeah. perspective on the game, it might be the same game, depending how you want to look at it, but your your seat at the game is very different here. So you're spending time to figure it out properly mm -hmm. before you go live. So, you know, $50,000 was your biggest loss in the bank, but that was enough to tell you I'm losing zero until I'm confident I've got this thing nailed. And that, that to me, that's yeah, and I guess, good for you. Yeah, yeah. And I've had, I've, I've, I've had that shock where... And I wanted to carry over that feeling of, I, I like, I mean, I thought my world was about to implode and that happened. And like my boss, she was, she was, my, my, my old boss at UBS was one of the best people I ever met in my life, genuine. And she was incredible, incredible trader, incredible teacher. Um, she was totally cool about it. She was like, dude, chill. <laughs> I've, got, I've got, I've had way worse than that. Yeah. Um, so, but I, I do remember that feeling and I just remember thinking, 
okay, let's hold, when I was kind of started trading by myself, I was kind of like, okay, let's hold on to that that sinking feeling and just think, just apply proper risk management and basically don't be an idiot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, good. Well, look, one thing I desperately, I really want to ask you uh, b- before we go is we talk a lot of the time as retail traders, you know, th- there's those days or those trades where you swear to God the market is out to get you, right? And you'll put a stop in Mm -hmm. and it's like your stop goes and gets picked off and then the stock price moves against you, right? So I want to ask from your perspective, does the market care at all about our 100, 500,000 share order out there? Do we get picked Um, off? I I guess it depends on how much you believe in kind of a herding effect because i mean if you've and if they're like i mean all algos as i was saying they look through the book and they look through where the liquidity is so if you've got people posting their stops all around the same area the algo's gonna know right the algo's gonna know um so i guess do they care about yeah i mean yeah i mean i like i i know of huge clients that we had huge global quant funds and I mean, they were sending in orders, some of them, I mean, like they were sending in like thousands of order every day, yeah. every day, but like some of their orders would be 500, a thousand shares. So do they know that this is an order that they're picking off from a retail guy? Possibly. Right. Possibly. Um, yeah, I guess it's kind of, um, it's, it's, it's hard to know exactly, but I mean, if, if people are trading in a similar fashion and the stops are in the same area, they're going to target that. Yeah, for sure. Right. But I guess you're, you're giving me the answer I sort of expected, which is they probably don't care. They're, they're not looking for Peter's order or Andrew's order, but they are looking for where those orders sit. So if we put our stop orders 100%. at the same place that, you know, people are logically putting a number of stop orders, they're going to look and say, oh, well, look, you know, we've got yeah. 50,000 shares here. Now, there, there it may be a thousand a thousand orders of 50 shares they don't really care as long as they get the liquidity they need and they're yeah. saying, we're gonna go we're no. gonna go after that because no. it's attractive they're, yeah they just i mean they don't care if it's one person or a thousand they just want the money right basically yeah no and that makes sense so yeah. that's something i think for everybody yeah. to be aware of sometimes it feels personal i i can almost guarantee it's never personal the computer's not looking for retail trader orders but they are looking for the place where the orders sit and if you say well you know after this important daily level after like you said some of these key things past yeah. vwap near the open price um, you know, th- th- there's areas yeah. that they're going to say, well, shoot. Yeah. If there's orders there, I, I want those. Cause it fills whatever yeah. premise they're going after for their client. Yeah. 100%. Awesome. Well, Andrew, 100%. Andrew, this is great. Like, I really appreciate you sharing some of that background experience. The last question oh, of course. that I- I'm hoping you can share is so, you know, you- you're obviously taking a cautious approach. And, uh, and, and I really appreciate the maturity that you're doing it. You've talked about some stuff that we talk about in the room from Jared in the morning with the market option theory and, uh, and Thor, of course, that talks ad nauseum about VPA and his volume price analysis. You've just yeah. reinforced how important that is because it's part of that makeup yeah. of the market. And it's part of what the big money, whether it's being traded by humans or algorithms, is looking for to try and execute against. Um, you know, so th- that's a lot of stuff we're doing. But if you had one piece of advice to give to any other trader who's trying to say, like, you know, is trying to figure it out like you are, what would you say would be the, the, the most important thing to focus on? 
Um, I would say re resilience, 100%, without a doubt. I mean, I came into my job as as an, as an algo trader within a bank with zero knowledge, but you just got to keep at it and it will eventually click. It, it does. So just keep, it's, there, people really, really, really overestimate how smart you need to be to trade. I mean, you, it, all it takes, all it takes is, is hard work. Just work your ass off and just be, once you, once you have, if you have a bad trade, get your ass back up and get back in the seat and trade again. But when you're not emotional. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I think that's, that, that's good advice. Yeah, you're right. Just, just keep at it. You know, I, I, I would say sometimes it's almost, um, it's almost a detriment to be too smart. Just just in that we sometimes yeah. outsmart ourselves, right? We try and overthink the market and we apply more complexity uh, complexity, sorry, to the situation that it might otherwise entail. Sometimes the story is as obvious yeah. as you think it is, but it, you know, we can still get 100%. caught in that. So, you know what? I like what you say. Resiliency is important. You know, hey, we're all going to make mistakes. Yeah. We're human. Learn from it and just get back up there. And you'll find that over time you can create that consistency. But I think, Andrew, to, to sort yeah. of what you're implying a little bit as well, you know, I don't care how experienced you are. You're never going to be right 100% of the time. Know that this game is a law yeah. of averages. And if you're hitting, you know, if you're hitting 60, 70%, you're probably doing pretty good, I would think, in terms of hitting those trades. 100%. And if you can maintain that, 100%. right, if you can maintain that, then you're profitable over time. Absolutely, absolutely. And as there was a great, a great trader in UBS who I worked, had the pleasure of working with too. And he was, he was one of the best. And he used to say, he used, or he used to like to say, um, just keep it simple, stupid. And that was it. The old kiss philosophy. Just, love it. it. It is. It. Yeah. Yeah. Just keep it simple. Keep it simple, stupid. Don't say that too, too many times fast when you're, when you've had a few whiskeys though. It's not possible. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, on that note, keep it simple, everybody. Uh, we appreciate it, Andrew. Thanks so much go. for spending the time with us today. And uh, for everybody out there, hopefully you'll check out Bearable Traders. If you haven't, check out our website or us on YouTube. We live stream free every morning, our pre-market show. And then you can join the room and trade live with us all day. So hopefully we'll uh, see you there soon. Andrew, we'll see you in the uh, chat room. Pleasure, Peter. Thanks so much, mate. Take care. See you. Bye-bye.